Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Our scripture for the morning is found in the closing book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. I would like to read a couple of verses from the first chapter and then return to the fifth chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You will remember that the rest of that chapter gives a vision of the exalted Christ. And then in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. At the beginning of chapter 4, the doorway to heaven opens, and John looks through and sees the very throne of God. Around the throne are the living creatures and the 24 elders, and they're bowing before God and they're singing holy, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then John sees this vision. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne of God, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. It's been my privilege to have a friendship over a number of years with a person who holds degrees from both of these institutions here in Wilmore. His name is Dr. Sam Camelason. 
and he is an Indian who came to know Christ under the influence of graduates of Asbury College and Asbury Seminary. Dr. Camelation has had a fascinating career with an organization in this country called World Vision. It was an organization that was formed to help meet the needs of the needy and the oppressed of the earth. And along with feeding the hungry and taking care, providing homes for orphans and doing other works of mercy like that, they also have a preaching ministry and Sam Camelation is the key figure in that. I suspect that he has seen face-to-face and talked face-to-face with more Christian workers around the world than any person in human history and probably several times over more than anybody else in human history. I looked at his passport the other day and it was about that thick and the sheets you could fold out and they were all stamped. I don't know where he has not been. In recent, in the recent months, as you know, some remarkable things have happened in Eastern Europe and segments of the world that just a few months ago were totally closed to the gospel have been opened to the gospel of Christ. One of the first persons to get an entry into some of those countries was Dr. Camelation. One of the reasons that he could go was that he had an Indian visa. He is an Indian citizen. And so he did not come from the West. He was not a part of the Cold War scene. And so he was able to get into places where many of us could not go. Out of that has come some priceless contacts. And some months ago, he called me and said, Dennis, you won't believe this, but we have an opportunity to hold a pastor's conference in Russia. Would you be willing to go and be one of the faculty members with me? I was flattered that he would invite me, and Sam is one of the most delightful persons that you can ever meet, and the thought of fellowship with him was very attractive to me. And so I said yes before I knew what the date was going to be. And then I found myself committed. And so in the last three weeks, I have had the privilege of going into southern Russia with Sam for a pastor's conference in a city of about 600,000 in the Republic of Moldavia within the Soviet Union. And there we had the privilege of ministering to 175 pastors and in the regular study sessions, about 75 ladies active in those churches in the Republic of, of Moldavia. I flew to Paris and then to Bucharest, Romania, and then from Bucharest, Romania, we caught a train that carried us on a 14-hour trip into Russia. It was fascinating, the train ride. It took me back to about 1940 in the United States. But what intrigued me most was that about 11.30 we stopped and for two hours we jolted back and forth and didn't move anywhere. And suddenly I noticed that the car I was sitting in was rising. And then I got up and looked around and realized that the railroad gauge in Russia is different from what it is in the rest of Europe. So they had to lift us up and pull all the wheels out from under that train and run a whole new set of wheels under the whole train so that we could go into Russia. And that's all right, but I hated to do it at between 11 and 1.30 in the morning. But, of course, they brought along their men looking for your passport and looking for your papers and made you sit and count all your money. And then they made a record of that so that when you came out, they'd know what you were taking out. And it was it was an interesting experience. But let me tell you what I found. You know, just a, it has not been too many months when we felt that uh, the gospel of Christ was only underground in Russia, and there 
was the enemy of a very hostile and committedly atheistic government. The department in every republic, in every republic that had to do with religion found its business to suppress religion and to oppress those who found themselves openly and vocally religious. So to my surprise, when I got there on Sunday morning, we went to church and the service, there were about 700 people jammed into a church and the people were standing in the aisle. When the invitation was given, there was a significant response. That afternoon, we attended a wedding of a young couple. We found ourselves a part of a a dinner from about 220 people under a tent, and it was like a Christmas celebration. I think that wedding took, I think, about six hours of that day for that poor couple, and that night they showed up in church. But I thought it's very interesting. Jesus began his ministry at a wedding, so I sort of liked the notion of being there. It was fascinating to watch the Christian instructions which the older members of the community gave to that young couple. Then that evening we had a service in another church, and the crowd was too large to get in the church, and so uh, the service was held outside, and when the invitation was given, there were those who were came forward to, to respond to that invitation were taken inside the church for counseling. It was quite cold, and so when we took them in, at least a third of the church to a half of the church was full of people responding to the, invi- to the gospel invitation. On, on Monday morning, we began our pastor's school. We began at 8 o'clock in the morning and ran for about six hours. The normal session was an hour and a half. You would teach for an hour and a half, and then somebody else would pick it up for an hour and a half. On Monday, I had an hour and a half slot, and on Tuesday, I had two hour and a half slots, and on Wednesday, I had two one and a half hour slots. And it was... Uh, it was it was an amazing experience to watch these people sitting in the pews, pastors. And one of the things you have to remember is that Protestants in Russia have had no opportunity for formal education. Because in Russia, over the last 70 years, if a family was committedly religious and took any part in church, then none of their children had access to college or university education. I found myself looking at those people and wondering how many church members there would be in the United States if being a member of the church meant that the children and the family would have to be day laborers the rest of their lives and could never get into any of the profession because the universities were closed to them. But you know, when I heard those people sing, I decided that maybe they were richer than some of us and that maybe They knew a whole lot of things that we, in our sophistication and our superficiality, do not know. Every pastor that was there was there only by being able to devote vacation time to the conference. At first, Sam asked the bishop if he would let the conference run four days. And the bishop said, we cannot ask these men who give so much of their time after hours to the church to take vacation time away from their families, and he tried to bargain for two. Sam twisted his arm, and we got three days. But every person that was there was paying a price for the privilege of being a part of that pastor's conference. So we uh, 
found ourselves spending those days with those people. It's interesting some of the people that we met. One of the men who have to arrange this was a journalist and a poet and a novelist, a writer who was well known in his section of Russia. He had been the president of the Association of Newspaper Journalists in his republic. And so all of the media people knew him. The government realized that he was not favorable to their communism, and so he was arrested and put into a psychiatric ward and intravenously had mind-altering drugs pumped into him to try to make him a conformist to their line. It's interesting, when he came out, it was not long until he was seized again and put through the same procedure. You see, if you're an atheist, a human being is just simply one more animal and can be behaviorally trained, the assumption is, the same way any animal can be trained. And so that brilliant, gifted, creative spirit was subjected to all of that. I noticed that he seldom spoke, seldom spoke, but when he spoke, it was well worth hearing. Another one that we met had been for six years in the gulag with Solzhenitsyn. Another man had been in prison for 16 years simply because he was a preacher to the gospel and had been mercilessly beaten while he was there. I question whether there was a single person in all of that crowd or in any one of our crowds who had not paid a price for his faith in Christ that none of us have ever had to pay. So I found myself moving among them, humble, simple people with great vitality and great integrity, I notice that Sam, who always preaches, when he goes to the pulpit, he slides his shoes off because he figures he's on holy ground behind the pulpit and he won't preach in his shoes. He told me he was in some rare frigid country in a Lutheran church and it was cold as blazes and they begged him not to put his, not to take his shoes off. He said, uh, God will take care of that. But he has that sense about him of a recognition of the holy. And, you know, I felt some of that as I moved among those priceless people who have, through bitter opposition, fought to maintain their faith in Christ, not only for themselves, but also for their families and for their children. Let me take a moment and just tell you who was on the team with, with us. The head of our team was a young man from World Vision. He comes from a Christian Missionary Alliance background. He lives in Bonn, Germany, Charles Rogers, and he spent his time in Eastern Europe now, and he was the one who put all of the pieces together from our side. He had with him a young American who must have been about 28 years of age, who was the media person, the cameraman, and the sound man, and he was a priceless help to us in all that we did. We had the head of the Canadian World Vision, Don Scott, who for many years was the CNMA missionary in Laos. And we had an interpreter from Germany, a young layman from Germany who was a very committed Christian, spoke about four languages, and he was the one who did all of the interpreting for me. Then we had the journalist whom I mentioned who was in every session, and uh, we had Sam. Now, uh, when the close of the conference came, It was interesting to watch the spirit build. And when we came to the final session and Sam Camelation gave an 
invitation for total commitment to Christ. It was significant to me, every single person in the audience, every man, every woman, arose and came forward. I think it was one of the more moving moments of my life as these people who had paid such a price for Christ said, we want to be wholly his. We want no restraints on us. We want to be out and out for him. Now, after the conference, we had three very interesting experiences that tell something of the story, too. On Wednesday afternoon, after we had finished our teaching session about 2, 2.30, about 4.30 in the afternoon, we had, an, we had an audience with the Minister of Culture and Cult. Now, he was the minister for the entire Republic of Moldavia. Now, the Office of Culture and Cult, and they call anything religious cult, and so that office is the one that has controlled for 70 years religious activities in Russia. Its purpose has been to, as I said, oppress those who gave any kind of religious witness and to uh, destroy, if possible, the church in Russia. That was That's the purpose of that office. So when we went into that office, the uh, pastors who went with us, you could sense some of their apprehension. It was sort of like walking into the very courts of the devil himself. And we sat down with a gentleman, six foot four, lean, very impressive. He had been a movie producer and a poet. Apparently this section of Russia is a section that has had great culture, strong, a strong culture. And I met, I think, three poets while I was there in the brief time. But he was a very dynamic person and he started talking to us. Now, of course, he was speaking in Russian, and all I understood was the tone of his voice. And as he spoke, I felt he was thoroughly irritated. And so I decided this is going to be a hostile experience. And then the translation began, and then the dialogue began. And I decided that the irritation in his voice was not hostility. It was deep and profound anguish of soul. He looked at us and said, I am the minister of culture as well as cult. And he said, there is no such thing as human culture without religion. Wherever there is a culture, there is religious faith. And he said, our government has committed itself across 70 years to destroy the central element in human culture. So he said, the end result is, that we are a people who have had our memory stripped from us. And when your memory goes, your sense of identity is gone. He said, we have stared into the very face of the devil himself, and we have come away with our flesh seared. I found my heart profoundly moved at a man who recognized the tragedy of their country and the tragedy of their culture and wanted to do something about it. And then he said, but you see, the Orthodox Church collaborated with the government and all of that. So he said, their integrity is gone and they cannot be spokesmen now to Russia of the claims of Christ. He said, uh, and now our Protestant segment in Russian society, there are no educated leaders. At a time when we need 
very wise and very capable spokesman for the Church of Christ. And these people, and I was sitting with some of those pastors of whom he spoke, these people cannot do that. So I spoke up and I said, sir, may I say just a word? I'm an American and these people are Baptists and I'm not a Baptist. And he retorted, well, about everything we've learned for 40 years, he's been through the voice of America, I suppose we can listen to one American in the flesh. And everybody sort of burst into laughter. But I had enough on my heart, I wasn't about to let that phase me and so I looked at him and said, let me tell you about the group of which I am a part in the United States. In 1830, it was a group remarkably like this group here. It was a group in which there were no educated people. It was a group that basically was unlearned and illiterate. But I said there was a vitality and integrity in the group. And I said, before that century was out, one out of every three church members in the United States was a member of that group. And today there are 80 some universities across the, across the American scene that have been brought into existence by that group that in 1830 had no education and no learning, but there was vitality enough and now they have made that kind of contribution to uh, American culture. He blinked a little, and I felt the Lord had helped me, and I said, there's vitality among these people. You may think they're simple, but there's reality, and there is integrity among them, and if you will give them some encouragement, they can make a contribution to your nation of which you one day will be proud that you had a chance to be a part of it. I sort of lost a bit of my heart to those Russian Christians, uh, so genuine. We then had an, an interview with a newspaper editor and her staff. She was a woman of about 55 years of age. Her associate editor was sitting next to her. He had spent years in the same prison as Solzhenitsyn for political activities that offended the government. She brought in with her four young reporters, all girls. So out of the six newspaper people there, five were, were ladies. And they looked to me like they were in their 20s. That newspaper has begun to devote one page of each issue to religious news and is devoting that page positively to promote religion. Only been a matter of months when that was illegal, that would be totally opposed to the government and the government would have wiped it out. Now they are free to do that. We sat in a fascinating conversation with a very intelligent woman. When we got to the end of that interview, she looked over at the young ladies that were sitting at the other end of the table and asked if any one of them had anything she wanted to say. And one of them spoke up, and she said, yes. There are a few of us that have access to the scriptures, but there are none of us that have any other kind of Christian literature. To understand the scripture." And to understand the full implications of Christianity, we have no help. Is there any way that you could send us books? You see, the government wiped all of that out over those 70 years of atheism. 
I found my heart responding deeply wishing we had a, that we had a task force, a crash task force of people who know Russian so that the treasures that we take for granted and that we use regularly here could be made available to people who want to know more of the Christian faith. The end of that interview, Sam said, could we pray for you? And she blinked and said, the editor, and said, oh, yes. And Sam prayed. When he finished praying, she looked up and said, I do not know whether we will ever meet again, but if we don't meet on this earth, I hope to meet you in heaven. I was speechless and shocked. When we closed the time with the minister of culture, Sam said to him, may we pray for you? And he sort of blinked. We knew that was not a normal experience. And he said, oh, yes. So Sam started praying. And if you know Sam Camelason, he's got this deep, mellifluous bass voice. And it began to fill that room. And he paused and made the interpreter translate so the man heard what he was praying. And when he finished, the minister turned to our journalist friend who had been in the psychiatric wards. And he said to him, in Russian, I found out after we got out what he said. He said, the next time they come, I must host them first. And pointed to Sam and said, he must preach here. And I concluded that man in the Ministry of Culture. And he said, I must sit on the front row. We're living in a period when there is a mass of the human race that's hungry for eternal truth in a way that I suspect has never been true in human history before. Then we had an interview with the Archbishop of the Republic, the Russian Orthodox. And that was very different. When we finished that, Sam said, would you pray for us? And all of those Baptists stand to pray, so I stood and shut my eyes, and he never did pray. I don't know whether he couldn't pray extemporaneously or whether he was not about to pray with Protestants. So it was a fascinating experience. After that visit with the Archbishop, we had just a few hours before the train time to head back. And so they had planned a luncheon for us about three o'clock in the afternoon in one of the pastor's homes. In an apartment building, almost everybody lives in dreary, drab apartments. So we found ourselves sitting at this table, loaded with food. And Charles Rogers said, don't make a mistake. You're getting a larger meal than they will serve for their families on Christmas. They appreciate your being here so much they've spent and saved in order that they might honor you with a large meal. And he said they do that at great sacrifice to themselves. At the end of that meal, the assistant to the bishop, who was a fellow, I would suppose, about 48 years of age, he, uh, a very attractive person, a laborer, but a very attractive person, had a beautiful singing voice, and when he led singing, you could feel them respond to him. He was a leader. He uh, looked over at us and said, the bishop could not be here. He had to be in Moscow. But he said, I have some things I want to say for him. He said, first, we want to thank you for coming. We do not have language adequate to express to you our appreciation for your being here. We are indebted 
Secondly, if we've done anything wrong since you came, or if in any way we have sinned against you, would you please forgive us? If we had, it was done unwittingly. And then he said, you see our situation. Our bishop is very old and will be soon retiring. And we have no one adequately educated to take his place. Now, he's the second man. In our culture, that kind of guy would be saying, get him out of the way, get the old man out of the way so I can do my thing. But he said, you see me, I'm too old to get an education. We have had other groups come and visit us. And we've shared with them our needs. And he said, they've gone on their way, and we've never heard a word from any of them. I was sitting across the table from him. His eyes flushed full, rimmed with tears. And he said, sir, will you help us? I've never seen Sam Camelacy discombobulated with anything. It's interesting he broke. It was one of those incredible moments. And he looked back and said, we will help you. He walked out and he said, I don't know what we promised, but we don't have any option. We have lived through what may be the most significant year in human history apart from the crucifixion and Pentecost. A sixth of the world's surface is found in Russia. And now those doors are wide open. And another chunk of it in Eastern Europe. And there is already a body of believers there. All they need is encouragement and prayers and technical help at certain points. They know what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But they do not have that plethora of tools that we have. And think what we, if we would give ourselves to it, could do for them. You wonder how this kind of incredible thing takes place? Let me take you back to the scripture when John looked and saw in the hands of God a book sealed with seven seals. And they searched heaven and earth and under the earth to find somebody who could open the seals that opened the book of destiny. And there was nobody worthy. And John wept and an angel said, Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the future. And John turned and saw, standing in the midst of the throng, the lamb slain from the foundation who took that book that nobody else could open, the book of the future, and began to break the seal. I talked yesterday with an expert on Eastern Europe and on Russia, and he said to me, Dennis, there was not a single soul in my knowledge of people who know Eastern Europe and Russia who believe that this kind of thing would ever be possible. And now it has happened. And all I can say in my heart is, I think Jesus has broken a seal and opened a door of opportunity. 
Sam was telling you about a young man in Romania when they were in, in the streets dying for their faith. I watched the build, saw the building pocked with bullet fire, crosses with the names of those who died on them there in the square. Sam said, the mother of this young man pled with him, university student, please, please, for my sake, for God's sake, don't go into the street. He looked back at his mother, and he said, Mother, it is very seldom that a moment comes that takes the measure of us all. I have no option. I must go. And he was one of the ones whose name was on one of those crosses. You know, I wonder if this is not a moment that takes the measure of us. The test, the measuring stick, is the lamb that sits on the throne, slain from the foundations of the world, and says, this is what I did to save a world. And he showed them his hands and his side. And now he looks at us and says, what will you do?